You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. I had the honor and the pleasure of sitting down with my good friend, Fred Minnick. Upon returning from the Iraq war in 2005, Fred had lived one of the most extraordinary lives He's become one of the world's leading whiskey critics, and he is an iconic storyteller. He's a host of the Fred Minnick Show, as well as a Bourbon Pursuit podcast, and also Dash Radio's Minnick Minute. Say that five times fast, I dare you. Minnick is also the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Bourbon Curious and Women Whiskey, and he shares his strong feelings with me on the category of vodka, his passions for all things in the beverage industry. He also gives us a look behind the curtain of his famous and celebrated Ascot Awards. And folks, just so much more. Sit back, relax, grab yourself a nice glass of Knob Creek Rye on the Rocks and enjoy the show. Fred, welcome to Served Up. I am so happy to have you on the show today. Well, Bridget, it's a pleasure. It's it's great to hang out with you in the in the sphere of podcasting. So I'm glad you're doing this. Yeah, me too. Me too. And, and I'm excited. You know, we've been friends for quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, before our listeners, it may be just be in, being introduced to you for the first time. Can you tell them a little bit about how you really entered the beverage world? So we all have like a, a consumer story, right? So we all were consumers and I was a big bourbon consumer. Um, I, I would say I was a drinker and not a taster. Today I would classify myself as a taster, but back then I was definitely a drinker. Uh, but my my story really begins when uh, when I came home from Iraq. I was a soldier there. And, and by the way, I would have uh, friends send me uh, bourbon in Listerine bottles because it was illegal for us to have... Uh, bourbon or any alcohol. So I had a, a Listerine collection there in Iraq. Uh, but uh, anyway, so I came home from Iraq and like a lot of, uh, like a lot of people, I, I had a tough time getting a job and I got this, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky to be with the woman who's now my wife. And I, I ended up getting this job in an area where I had no expertise or experience. And that was in food editing, food editing and writing. It was at this place called NetWorld Alliance. And they, they still exist today. Just a really, really good trade publication uh, company. And I became an editor of a restaurant trade magazine called Fast Casual, where I covered uh, the likes of Panera Bread and Starbucks and things like that from a business perspective. And I started writing about uh, all of these restaurants uh, doing like uh, quick service um, uh, alcohol. And so like Panera Bread would start serving wine and beer. And, that, and I wrote about that. And I became fascinated with, with writing about alcohol. This was in uh, 2006. 
and you know, the job was great, but you know, anyone who's ever been in the business knows you don't make a lot of money as a writer. And this was the case there, but I was also having a lot of personal problems. Uh, PTSD had its meat hooks into me, you know, people come home from war and, you know, we all deal with our war demons uh, a different way. And I was in and out of therapy and and I knew, you know, the, my job got in the way of really being able to focus on myself. So I just quit and freelanced. And that way I could spend, you know, time and the, the time I needed in therapy. And one of the first things I did before I left was I took, you know, all of these publishers, they get magazines from everywhere. So they like to see like who's, how things are printed. They like to feel the paper. They like to see, um, you know, design types. So this uh, publishing house I worked at, they got every magazine everywhere uh, from, from the same printer. Like it was like, there were tons of magazines. And so I picked this big stack of magazines up. And when I went out on my own, I pitched every single one of them. One of those magazines was uh, beverage uh, Patterson's Beverage Journal, which would be rebranded as Tasting Panel. And another one was Successful Meetings. And I pitched both of them at the same time. Uh, Successful Meetings came back to me and asked me to write about uh, bourbon. And I wrote about the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. Uh, Tasting Panel, Meredith May, wrote me and said... uh, Hey, you're in Kentucky. We need someone in Kentucky because there's bourbon there. Would you write about bourbon for us? So that is the story of that was my foot in the door from a from a writing and business perspective uh, to how I got here. When I was in therapy, you know, the story kind of continues of like I'm learning how to taste um, at this point, but I learn in therapy a process called taste mindfulness, and I applied it to. I applied it to uh, tasting wine and spirits and, and, and I never knew I had a talent uh, or a gift uh, for smelling and tasting, but that's, that's kind of how, that's kind of how it started. And so it's always, it's always related to that uh, wonderful time I had in the sandbox. Man. I mean, you really have had quite a journey, Fred, from being a soldier to really a master taster, uh, to a writer, to a podcaster. And yeah. I, I can just go on and on. But if we could pick it up from there, so, you know, once you come out of Iraq mm-hmm. and, you know, and I, and I love that you're not afraid to talk about mental health either. Yeah. It's something that we tend to keep very close to our vest, but the more that we can share, the better. Yeah, especially, are. I think, especially this industry, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what it is like about, you know, this, this is a, a very big churn and burn industry. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of. I mean, how many bartenders do do we know who have died before they were fifty? Uh, and how many. many how many writers do we know that showed all the talent in the world, but they couldn't um, they couldn't stay in the industry because you know just overconsumption. You know, just that desire to work on myself kept me in check to be able to be in this industry. I mean, I've had people ask me, "How could you be?" someone in therapy and PTSD and and be a professional uh, alcohol writer. I'm like, well, that's, those are the tools I have. Like I don't taste uh, on what I call anniversary days of like days I was nearly killed or when I feel, when I feel emotionally numb, I don't taste them because I know that that taste is like, it's not, I'm not tasting, I'm drinking and I still go to therapy. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm still in, 
I'm still keeping tabs on all that stuff. And especially now with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, you know, we're, I'm checking in all my old, former soldiers and we're all kind of like, you have to be able to uh, cope with life and you have to be able to, you know, deal with the problems that come at you. And if you are not, if you are not willing to get help for that, you know, then, then those problems will weigh you down and people can use alcohol as a crutch and then they'll blame alcohol, but it was never, it, alcohol was just a symptom. Alcohol abuse was just a symptom of what got you to that point. Yeah. Well, I'm very proud of you that you are, you know, very thoughtful about self-care because we have lost a lot of friends in the recent, you know, yeah. I'd say the recent, even the past five years, let's say too many that haven't even reached the age 45 yet, the age 50 yet that have really gone downhill due to, you know, and I've got, I've got my issues with weight. You know, that's been the area where like self-care has been tough for me. You know, like I've been, I went, I went every time I get on like some kind of workout regimen or something, then, you know, I get injured and, you know, that's where, that's where the big gaping hole for me is, 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 uh, is the fitness portion. And, um, you know, every time I get myself back, it's like I hurt my Achilles or, or hurt something else. But, but uh, self care mentally, I'm all there. Physically, I got a lot of work to do, Bridget. <laughs> we all have a lot of work to do. I have a lot of work to do as well. So bring us up to speed. So once you're out of Iraq, you know, mm-hmm. you've really done some great work for yourself and you found your niche in the writing world. Mm-hmm. Then, really, what um, what was that bridge that brought you over to the master distillers and all those great connections that you have on that bourbon trail that I know that you hold so dear? Yeah, I, I think it's because I just, I, there, I ask questions, you know, I approached bourbon and wine, you know, cause I was covering wine as intensely as I was uh, bourbon. I just asked questions like, you know, any journalist would and, there was this big lack of transparency in in whiskey in uh, between it, it still exists but between 2008 and uh, 2012 which would have been my i i would say that would have been like my when i was really hitting the pavement hard covering lawsuits covering any kind of um any kind of like merger all the business related things i was really into uh i was uh I was really adamant about disclosing people's mash bills. And this was a time people were like, didn't want to talk about their recipes. And I would find sources that would give me recipes. I would find sources that would give me still sizes and all the things that people were trying to hide. I was bringing them uh, to the public. Come to find out the distillers, the people who worked at the distilleries, they were all for that. And they were, they were like, I don't know why, but the marketer, the, chief marketing officer doesn't want this out there. You know, so it it was it was kind of like a there had been people in the past, people before who were blunt and said the truth and all that. I did the same thing, but I did it in a different way. A lot of times people would come out in opinion and say this sucks or you suck or whatever, but I would go and get their opinion uh, and give them a chance to like comment on on why they weren't being transparent on something. And they would always they would always comment, and sometimes they didn't like the question. Sometimes they reacted uh, a little rudely, but they were always appreciative of that of that moment. And that helped me that helped me build kind of like a connection as a guy that was really trying to tell the story of um, of whiskey 
in in a way that they cared about it. And that was, and I think that uh, I've thought a lot about this is like, how did I, how did I break through all this? And like the 15, 20 other writers at the time doing the same thing as me, same age as me didn't, you know? And I, I think it comes down to that. It's like, I, I cared enough to just ask them and be thorough. You know, that's something I admire about you. You do always ask a question and you also bring up topics that um, we don't discuss or that we should be discussing. And you were really one of the first to really shed light on the women in our industry. Mm -hmm. You've always opened the door and have held that space for people like myself, which I appreciate because in the world of not only whiskey, just beverage itself, it's not always easy. Um typically definitely being a woman, um, you may be the 1% in the room, um, in the boardroom, in the classroom, in the workshops. And so can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write about that and produce a book around it? Well, I'll tell you the, the story around, you know, creating whiskey women. Uh, and it's almost the book that wasn't, um, I remember, I, I had so many rejection letters on that book, so many. And there was, I mean, even like the University of Kentucky Press rejected it. And, and like um, it, it was rejected by so many. And when, I mean, you've done books, so you know, it's, it's a combination of the subject matter, the audience that's going to read it and the author. There's, you know, there's all that kind of crap. Um, but this book was really, I I don't know what it was that really made me feel like I had to tell this, but I, I just, I remember going around and asking the distilleries about the women and their history. And I'm looking at literally looking at women inside the labs, you know, doing the, the test blends and stuff. And the marketers, the PR people like, yeah, we don't really have any women in our history. I'm like looking at them right there. Um, And they, they didn't, I, I would, I would uncover women in these people's brand histories that they didn't even know about. And it was just shocking to me. Um, And it's shocking to me that it has never really been told um, and, and the, and the women, what they did for the brands, you know, there was one or two brands that really championed the women in their history. LaFroig with Bessie Williamson, uh, has always talked about her. I don't think they quite talked about her to the extent that, you know, she was running, operating the distillery during world World two, you know, and, and, and helping the allies. I don't think they went that far, but they are always very vocal about uh, her involvement with LaFroig and of course, Maker's Mark, you know, with Marjorie Samuels, you know, they were always very vocal about her, but there were so many brands that just didn't know about women in their, in their history. I remember when, when we were getting all of these rejection letters, um, I, I just kind of felt this resolve to like tell this story. And I was so nervous. I was so nervous about this book because I was afraid that the misogynistic world of, and, and some people have been called out for this, you know, later on in their careers, but I was really afraid of people coming after me 
saying that I was making something up, just trying to, you know, appeal to women or something like that. So if you go and look at that book, there are footnotes for everything. I cite every single source. (laughs) I was so nervous about someone saying that I didn't have my facts right, that I oversighted it. And, uh, and that's, it kind of came off as more as a, an academic book or a scholarly book versus my style of writing. But that was because I really wanted to make sure that those sources were out there and that those sources could be used by someone else in another time. And they were mostly first, uh, first source uh, spots versus second source. Well, I mean, obviously I have a copy of it and I want to say it was uh, my family and I were traveling through Kentucky and I want to say it was in last, doesn't matter, but last November and we stopped at Buffalo Trace mm-hmm. and they're, they have copies there. Yeah. Yeah. They were cool. It was super cool to show my daughter that book. Oh, that's awesome. Besides like being here at home, which mm-hmm. nothing I have is cool, by the way, mom, not cool. But to if, see that if book. If only she knew, though, like how cool you are and oh. like how much of a trendsetter you are in, um, in in the cocktail game. I mean, she knows she knows about your your uh, Obama cocktail, right? Does she know about she does. that? She does. But I'm also the person who tells her to pick her underpants up, you know, okay. not to leave them up in the bathroom and not to leave wet towels on the floor and do the dishes. So I'm more of that person than anybody else. But it wasn't until that moment. She's like, mom, this is so cool. And so I really appreciated that. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. I love that story. So yeah, it was awesome. So from, from writing books and you've always been contributor to a contributor to many magazines, you know, you've Mm -hmm. had so many articles out there. You know, something else that you do is you you also have this really cool Spirit Award platform. Can you talk mm-hmm. about the ASCOT Awards? Like why that was something you wanted to do, you know, why you saw that um, a value, right, to the yeah. spirit community and how did that come to be? So, uh, you know, I've like you, I've been a judge at the San Francisco World Spirits competition for a long time. Uh, I'm still a judge there. Even though I started my own competition, I'm still you know, very, very much, uh, in support and friendly with, uh, San Francisco. Uh, I just, I kind of, um, a, a lot of, a lot of what I do is because I'm so passionate about this industry. I don't want to start a, a brand or at least yet, I don't want to start a brand and I have to find other ways to continue to grow. Uh, that, that is not necessarily starting a, a brand. So I started, um, you know, between the books, you know, I've done seven books and in, in various genres. I actually started a magazine after I left like Whiskey Magazine and Whiskey Advocate. And then the, pandi- the pandemic just ruined a lot of stuff, you know, um, and I was doing all kinds of events. But the spirits competition, like for s- some reason, I-, I found this like this talent of mine and and people will listen to me when I say something is good or something is bad. And I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, I started doing a YouTube channel where I would be very transparent about how I tasted and show people how to taste and all that. And I wanted to bring that to the forefront uh, with the competition. And that's what the American Spirits Council of Tasters are, the ascots, which, you know, I mean, I wear an ascot and I I was, I was getting uh, my co-founder of the festival. 
he or the festival, the the spirits competition is uh, also created the John Barleycorn Awards uh, with John McCarthy, the uh, former men's health editor. He uh, he started recruiting me to be a judge, and I was just like, "Look, I can't judge another spirits competition." And then he just flat asked me, "So why don't you start your own?" And uh, and that and it happened in my little pub, my little bar that I go to. He came out here. And, and that kind of planted the seed in my, in my brain of like, you know, I got to start, I got to start thinking of ways um, to grow that's outside of, of where I am. Cause I mean, everything that I've done, I've kind of, I kind of outgrew it and I'm an ambitious person. I like owning things. I like, I like doing things that are cool. And I wanted, I wanted the ascots to be, to be very rigorous. I wanted it to be tough. Like you taste. 10 things, four of them might get medals. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of how I want it to be. Now, in the scope of the business, it may actually hurt the revenues of the business because you're not giving brands like putting medals on their, on their bottles. And that's not to say that they didn't earn those medals. I just like being very rigorous um, and having like robust standards. So I wanted, I wanted a competition that was very difficult for someone to win. And I wanted one that was very much, you know, a consumer favorite to to learn through. So we, you know, we record uh, the tastings and and you know we live stream the finals. And at the moment, at the moment, we are at, we're, we're virtual. And you know, soon I'm sure we'll be in person. But uh, it is that's a matter of pandemic once again, and it probably could get away with safely doing it in person this year, but. It's virtual is just as, you know, it, it's just as operable. So, so that's kind of how that came about. And I got to be honest with you, I'm having so much fun with it because, you know, before I'd always been, I'm, I'm still at the table, but it, I, I'd never been as behind the scenes as I am with this one. And to kind of see like how you rank something versus Francesco at, at a high level to, and to see how that can like throw off the entire scoring system. It's fascinating. And by the way, you're, you're a tough cookie when it comes Me? to judging. You're, you're Me? tough. Yes. You, Oh, I don't give away, um, praise if it's, <laughs> if I don't believe it's deserved, yeah, I guess. You're a, you're a, you're a tough one. Yeah. Well, the hardest thing for me to do in this competition, Bridget mm-hmm. was to, was to allow vodka in for the uh for the competition because you know i have this whole saying and this motto that vodka sucks and i loathe vodka i really do not like it but there are a lot of people who do and so i just recuse myself from the tasting of vodka and i've been i've actually been really surprised by the tasters who prefer to do actual analytical tastings of vodka and there a lot of them are whiskey whiskey guys yeah, I mean, I don't I'm not mad at vodka at all. It it definitely helps keep my lights on here at home for sure. I I have I have work. actual I have issues. I mean, I I should probably next my next therapy session, I should probably, you know, look into this whole vodka thing. Wait, wait. <laughs> See why it's making you so angry. I don't understand. But but I do that. I do have some, you know, I have some like business reasons and some historical ones, but you know, I mean, I've I mean, maybe maybe I've uh, put a little box of like 
you know, internal hate and just called it vodka. I don't know, but I don't know, man. I, Cause I, I think it's really cool when you taste, <laughs> because it is not, I mean, yeah, it's not truly like, it doesn't really fit its definition, at least uh, when it, go, when it comes to tasting, you know, odorless, colorless, tasteless. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that when you taste a vodka that's made from a potato, it is very creamy. You know, mm-hmm. it definitely, you know, coats the palate. It has a nice, beautiful, long memory. And then when you taste something that's maybe made out of rye, just like when you taste a bourbon that's made out of rye, you get that nice little oiliness, right? Um, right on the top of the roof of the mouth. So, I mean, there, there's definitely differences. They're not all the same. So I hope that's something you get past one day, but we'll see. Well, it, my, <laughs> we'll it, is, it, it has never, it never has had anything to do with drinking vodka. My, my whole motto is, you know, vodka, vodka did not even have a U.S. definition until 1958. Mm-hmm. And when it comes into the, onto the scene, I mean, everybody started drinking it and it, uh, it basically was the first step for bourbon's decline. And so that, that's a big reason why, uh, I'm also not a fan of some of the business practices today of selling vodka and like how, you know, a lot of it sold at eight to nine in the morning, you know, going back to the kind of responsibility stuff connected to like retailers. I think that's something the industry really should look at, like uh, how we serve known alcoholics, uh, kind of like gambling. You go into a casino, they will not allow an addicted gamble, a known addicted gambler at a table. You know, the industry has always said like, you know, drink responsibly and, you know, within the bar community, there's ways to stop um, the sale of, uh, of alcohol. And there's a lot of things there at the bartender side, but on the retail side, man, you know, they sell a fifth, put it in a mm-hmm. paper bag, drunk in the parking lot, guys back in the morning. You know, yeah. I, I just, I just think there's that, it, that's some of it. And there's more than vodka being served there, but. Well, I, I could go on and on and on. I know you could. I know you could. I don't, don't hate vodka, don't. folks. So I'll just tell you that. Um, let's talk about some other categories that you do like besides bourbon. Right. What else? Um, I am an trigger? enormous rum fan. Yeah, me too. I love rum uh, and I like rum. I like the complexities of rum and I, I love how it varies from region to region. Mm hmm. Uh, and I love, I, I love how there's still discovery and availability of rum. And also there's amazing rum just sitting right there on the shelf that people walk by every day, like Appleton. Mm-hmm. I mean, Appleton is a beautiful Jamaican rum and it gets passed over because, you know, people think it's, well, it's, it's, it's a large scale, you know, product, which it's really not in comparison to like, uh, you know, Bacardi. Right. But, uh, uh, it's, it, to me, uh, rum has so much incredible, uh, value, uh, from, as it, from a taster and I am a sucker for, uh, rum cocktails. Really? But, what kind? Oh, What's your favorite? Well, we just make so many rum punches at the house. Uh, we do Hemingway daiquiris, mm-hmm. we do Mai Tais, a basic daiquiri is, it, it's such a big, big thing in our house. And, and you know, one thing I have noticed uh, I'll, I would never do this in bourbon, but I will take the higher end rums and make cocktails with them. Sure. You know, because you, because the cocktails will be more robust and expressive with the higher end rum as is, as is the case with tequila. 
but with bourbon, I don't, I don't feel like you get that. You don't get that upgrade in the cocktail as much as you would with, uh, with like uh, tequila or rum. Yeah. Rum. I love tequila. Uh, I'm a big fan of, um, uh, of some gins as well. I think gin, I, I find myself to be a little bit more brand centric than, uh, than stylus. Like I, I love Tanqueray. Um, mm-hmm. and I, and I'm not a Hendrix fan. And that's like, you know, I think that's throws people off. Like I really, I've never liked Hendrix. I love cucumbers. That's the weird thing is cause they always oh. serve it with like a cucumber. Uh, let's see what else, you know, uh, this is outside of, uh, of, of our world, but I love like Pilsners. I'm mm-hmm. not a, I'm not a big beer guy, but when I do, I like to have the lighter crisper ones like lagers and Pilsners and, you know, Scotch ales. Um, I'm just, just kind of look around my office to see if there's anything that kind of catches my eye. What do you think about um, this whole no and low ABV kind of movement that's happening? I get asked that question an awful yeah. lot by brands, by my customers, sure. uh, my accounts, you know, to either create or just to talk to the subject of low alcohol or no alcohol mm-hmm. um, options. I think it's, I think it's a, there are days that I want to take off. Like, I mean, I, I will take, you know, three, four days off at a time, uh, no tasting and inevitably I'm at, I'm at an event or I'm at a party or something. I hate it because everyone is pressuring me all the time to put a drink in my hands mm-hmm. and they do not stop. Uh, and it's like, and once you moved on from one guy, another guy comes up and it's like, it almost keeps me from even going like, and, and people feel affronted if you are at one of their events and you're just drinking water. And then some people like I had, a, I had a guy I'm very close with say like, man, I just can't be around you. If you're drinking water, like, it's like, I'm, af- I'm afraid that you're not okay. I'm like, that's a it, crazy statement. It, it's, it really is, but wow. it's true. People, people feel that way. And so I, I like, uh, I like the, the spirit, no spirit related. Mm-hmm. I, I like mocktails. Cause I can move about freely without having pressure. People think it's just like a cocktail or something, but you know, we had my, my wife was, when she was pregnant, you know, she would get cocktails mm-hmm. and our, our mocktails, not cocktails. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, I, I think those are very important and going back to the responsibility and the fact that we've lost so many incredible people in our industry. I mean, this is one of the ways we can help combat that. You know, and the thing is, is we don't always have to drink. Uh, we don't, we don't always have to have something in our hands and, and, and God bless them. We still have people, we have people in this industry who are sober. Mm-hmm. We do, to, we do. Who go, to, who go to AA meetings and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I would never, ever want to want them to feel like they have to break their sobriety to feel fit in. And at the end of the day, the question is, is there a market for it? I just gave you like several circumstances in which I'm buying uh, those. So I, I would say there's definitely a a market for it. And um, I think the industry should embrace it. Um, you're always going to have like, oh, now you're going to be at something. You got to drink some high proof liquor. You know, right, you're always, right. always going to have that. But, you know, I, I think it's a very important step toward this industry's health. Yeah, well, I'm, both literally I'm right behind that as well. Yes, 110%. There ha- we have to have options, mm-hmm. 
right? I, and, and I think it's a little bit like, I think it's, it, it's far less advanced than like, uh, you know, veganism, but like, you know, ve- there's vegans. Like I, if you're a vegan, which I'm not, but there are days that I don't want to eat meat, you know, and I just want vegetables. You go to a restaurant, there's like one thing that you mm-hmm. can get. And if I'm at a restaurant and I'm a vegan, there's one thing I can get. I question if it's truly vegan. And so I'm just like, can I just have a bucket of carrots or something? You know, <laughs> um, I, and I, I feel like the, the spiritless campaign is a, is a little bit like that. It's mm-hmm. there's a, there's a lot of people who are just against it and make fun of it. And then it it's needed. Mm-hmm. It's needed. I, it, I, they've got an uphill battle, but I'm in their corner. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, let's take it back to bourbon a bit, especially the bourbons that are in your backyard, right? Mm-hmm. In Kentucky. And so for so many years, bourbon was so localized to really to the Kentucky area, bit of Tennessee, when talking about Tennessee whiskey. And it's always been generational, mm-hmm. right? Generations. Now, you know, today, 2022, and in, in the past maybe 10 years, let's say, the category has exploded across the country. And, you know, just even for myself, it's almost like, um, and wine has done the same thing. It Mm -hmm. has done the exact same thing. And wine, you had maybe old world and new world, and now you have everything in between. And so it's very hard to keep current on what's coming up, what's new, what are the new expressions? What are the new distilleries that are opening? Mm -hmm. How do we really tell the difference between kind of that craft movement versus the crap that is coming out as well. Yeah. Uh, this is a hard one uh, because the small distilleries, you know, they often get just one crack, one shot at, at winning over somebody. I tell, I tell distillers all the time, please don't send me your first batch. And, and, and if you do send me your first batch, just know I will review it. I will, I will talk about it. And if it's awful, as much as I like you as a person, I will say it's awful. What I have noticed is a lot of these, a lot of these distillers are not putting out one and two year old product anymore. They're waiting till they get something, you know, that's legit and can stand out. And a good example is a brand in Indiana called Hard Truth. Guy's been in operation for a few years. He just released his first product. It's a four year old sweet mash fantastic it made my top 100 last year and this guy uh this guy did it right but there's been so many brands i'm looking at a couple of them i won't mention them on the air but they sent me their first and second batches and they were awful and they send me subsequent stuff and i'm like i just can't taste it and even though it's my job i mean at some point i can't i can't taste the evolution of bad and so what is happening right now we are having a uh, a, a growth of these smaller distillers who are creating really good products uh, that are catching fire in their local markets and it's kind of spreading out. And so if you see that, then, you know, somebody likes it and it's probably good, but I, I would say the best, the best rule you can follow is to don't taste first batches if they distilled it, but there's also a, a ton of sourced products. So people, create a brand and they buy someone else's whiskey and bottle it, that stuff's going to be a Barton or Heaven Hill or MGP. It's all going to be, you know, fine. Yeah, no, for sure. What do you think about the whole single malt craze that's happening? The um, the American single malt? 
Yes. I want to just, yeah. I would like to talk about it. Um, I, that is something I'm not mad about either. I think exploration and giving it a try and putting your whole heart behind something is mm-hmm. always a great thing, but I'm, I'm really curious of your thoughts around American single malt. Well, I, I think it can become contentious when you're like, what is an American single malt? And there's like, uh, and it's all over the place. And one of my most favorite, one of my favorite people in the entire industry, Lance Winters is very much of St. George is very much opposed to having a definition or putting uh, single malts in a box. And, and I kind of like that. I kind of like, I kind of like single American single malts, just being whatever a brand want, wants to make it. And, and, and it, but there does, there does need to be some commonalities there. and, and that's, I think that's where, where we can get in trouble. If, if there's not any like one standard, what is it? Um, does it meet a certain uh, grain bill or whatever? Kind of like bourbon does, but I love it. Um, I've also seen a lot of bad, bad attempts at it. Uh, the American experiment of peat is dangerous because people don't know how to use peat properly. And, and then once it starts getting over into like the, uh, the more typical American styles like bourbon and rye, you, those can just be so bad. And, and like, you can't, you got to offload those somehow. And they're just not, they just don't li- live up to the, uh, you know, to the styles that are being created in Scotland often. So I, I would say we're, we're in the infant stages of American single malt and it'll be interesting to see where it goes. But, um, you know, I think companies like Westward, Westland, uh, St. George, even though, you know, the, they defer in like what they believe single malt is, uh, those are brands to keep an eye on. Uh, Balconis has done a really good job. Old Line on the East Coast is fascinating. So there's, there's some good stuff out there. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's going to be really cool and really fun to, to watch what they do and mm-hmm. to taste along as well. Because eventually, going to need a definition. <laughs> yeah, they're going to need to define it a little bit. But like you said, it's a baby right now, so it's not yeah. quite ready to be named, maybe. But well, and it's and it's later. at the t- it's at the tune of what the fe- federal government wants or will allow, and you know it'll keep trucking along. And and to be honest with you, the people who have the say are the consumers. Yeah, you know, and I just don't see, I just don't see the the single malt craze being anywhere near close to, to bourbon. Um, I would say it's become very much a, a brand focused theme versus categorical theme. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your podcast, Fred? Yeah, uh, I have two podcasts. Uh, I have bourbon pursuit where I'm a co-host with, uh, Kenny Coleman and Ryan Cecil. And we just interview bourbon people and just kind of keep up with bourbon trends. Then I have the, um, the Fred Minnick show where I interview, uh, musicians, um, and other celebrities, uh, past guests have included like, uh, Peyton Manning, Ludacris, uh, Killer Mike, uh, Lindsay L, Ashley McBride. And I send them uh, whiskey, uh, or in some cases, tequila or, uh, another spirit. And then we, we taste and then we determine like what our favorite is uh, of the moment. And that's just the Fred Minnick show. And uh, it, it hit number one last year in music interviews. 
It's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, That's was, so cool. I've listened. It's so, I think it's super cool and very unique. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. I, I, I find podcasting to be fascinating because you can have a top rated podcast in a category and not be affiliated with anybody. Now I got picked up by podcast one, uh, last year, but before that I was just an independent guy out there, you know, slugging it out. And it's podcasting is not easy. You know, it's not, it's, it's, uh, it is definitely a, I have so much respect for Mark Gillespie for doing whiskey cast all these years and the way Mm -hmm. he's done it. I mean, nothing but respect. Absolutely. As a fellow podcaster, (laughs) I, I totally get it. Can you tell our, our listeners where they can find your podcasts, your book and yourself? Yeah. So you can find, you can find, uh, the podcast, wherever we get your podcasts, uh, the Fred Minnick show or bourbon pursuit, you go to fredminnick.com, find all that stuff. And you can find me on social media. Uh, I'm the one with the blue check mark. There are a couple of imposters out there. I've had people impersonate me in liquor stores and, and stuff before. Uh, but I, not that I walk around with a blue check mark over my head, but on social media, I got the blue check mark. Did the people in the liquor stores walk in and say, I would like your best vodka. That's it. That's it. No, there was, there was a guy that would, uh, would, would show up to the festival saying he was me. Uh, and then a guy showed up to get some allocated bourbon, uh, at one of the liquor stores here saying he was me. And what these people don't know is like, I'm friends with all these, everybody right. in, in this world from the people who are doing the tickets to that. And they're like, you know, I mean, then you gotta be crazy to try and pull that off. It's, and it's just not cool anyway. No, not at all. Can you give some advice maybe for some of our listeners that really want to break into the beverage industry, Yeah, especially on the writing side, I'm not talking about the bartending mm-hmm. side, but you know, mm-hmm. maybe they have a knack for writing and they have a total interest in spirits and wine. Do you have some best practices to share? Yeah. Well, I mean, to be a writer today, I mean, there's a reason why I became a podcaster and a YouTuber. Uh, it's because all my avenues for making money as a writer are drying up. Like if you take a look at uh, what the likes of Forbes and Parade and Huffington Post pay, I mean, it's minuscule, if anything. And you have people who are uh, writing for free just to get exposure. and and unfortunately. I can't put food on the table for my two little kids with exposure, you know? So I, I, I mean, I had, I had to pivot into other ways and, you know, you can, you can do well on YouTube and you can do well on podcasting. So I I would say I will tackle it from a, from a media perspective. And that is find out what you like to do and amplify that. I'll give an example. If you are an illustrator or a cartoonist, there's nobody out there doing really cool you know, beverage cartoons. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's a a wide open thing for that. There's a lot of ways to now make money. They're like, there's Patreon. uh, And believe it or not, some people are on OnlyFans. And there's a lot of ways you can get people to contribute to you to to help with your creative process. But I never, I never picked up a guide or, or try to ask someone for advice to like figure out how to get where I am now. I just went, I just did it. And the thing is, I feel like some people are just afraid to to take that first step. Man, I, I just don't believe in that. I, I think just jump in with your feet first, head first sometimes, and just go. And I'm always happy to help someone. So if you, you know, if you want to hit me up, hit me up on fredminnick.com and I'll be happy to answer any questions I can. 
That's amazing. And I hope listeners, I hope you take him up on it. I hope you flood his box. <laughs> What's next for you, Fred? Uh, I have actually, I'm about to, uh, this has never been done before. So speaking of jumping all in, right. I am doing a 16 to 20 city tour of my solo event called blind bourbon. Wow. Where I, I teach sensory training. I give everybody a blindfold and we smell some things. I bring someone up on stage, put a blindfold on them and we smell funny things on stage. So they may, they may get, uh, hear a chuckle in the audience or two, but it's amazing. Bridget, people can't smell a banana. Like a lot of people, you put a blindfold on them, they can't smell the banana. And then, uh, in the blind tasting portion, we taste five, uh, bourbons blind, and then we rank them and then we reveal them. We talk about it. And so this whole thing is going to happen in music venues across the country. I'm really excited to be doing like places like uh, the Rainbow Room in Los Angeles. And that is, uh, you know, it's had so many great musicians uh, play there. And that is, uh, that's what I'm most excited about. That's going to be announced here very soon. Do you have um, tour swag, like a concert shirt with all your tour dates on the back, like a rock band? Yes. You need to produce yeah, yeah. those. We will have, Badass. we will have a, uh, we will have a concert or a, a tour t-shirt. Yes, absolutely. And, but this has never been, I mean, this is a huge, enormous risk and it's never been done before. And it's, it's one of those things where before the pandemic, this is the kind of uh, in-person programming that I was doing and like mm -hmm. leading toward, uh, but it was always with, you know, someone else. And this is the, this is the big going out on the edge and, and doing it myself. Well, on behalf of the served up family and myself, Fred, we wish you all our best. Just go yeah, out there you. and crush it, brother. I think that that is super cool. <laughs> I will buy one of those concert shirts and wear it proudly. And if you come in my neck of the woods out here in Chicagoland area, yeah, I will definitely will check it out. I think that's great news. When will that um, when will tickets go on sale or have they already? Uh, no, they have not gone on sale already. Uh, we should be. They're all getting done at independent venues. So everyone is a separate contract. And so every one of them is like a back and forth with like glassware and stuff. It's, I'm sure it's all so much fun, but, uh, <laughs> but we are, I would say we should be on sale by mid to end of March. All right. Well, that's coming up. That's yeah. wonderful. That's well, we'll keep an eye on that for sure for you. That's wonderful. Well, and I, and by the way, I'm hitting two spots in, in your neck of the woods. You are. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'll definitely have to check you out. I think that's oh. so cool. It's like a rock show, but with Fred, <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it's awesome. It's so, it's very, very cool. Well, listen, man, I want to thank you so much for being on Served Up. I want to wish you all my best. You're doing some really good work. You should be proud oh, of yourself. You. I am proud of you. I know the community oh, is you. proud of you. You do a lot for us and you keep on educating um, really just the world on bourbon with such class. So thank you. Thank and, you, you know, so just much. Keep going, such a man. Pleasure. Yeah. It's, it's such a pleasure, Bridget. And I'm proud of you and all that you've done. And, you know, I've looked up to you and, and like how you've, uh, you've built such an amazing brand and, and been a mom, you know, as a parent, uh, I really do look up to people who raise kids. Right. And, and, uh, that's the most important job we have, right? It sure so. is. It sure is. Well, on that note, I want to wish you just 
some great health during this time, especially when you get back out on that road and a lot of peace, Fred. Cheers to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers.